Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of drugs and abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Around 5.30 in the morning on October 13th, 1979, Detective Alan Sylvia awoke to the sound of his pager. Picking up the bedside telephone, he quickly dialed the office to see what was happening. He learned that some joggers on a track at a local high school found a body under the bleachers. He dressed and hurried out to the school. Detective Sylvia had investigated several murders in his time with the police department in Fall River, Massachusetts. But this one was different. He would later state, every homicide is unique, but this stuck out as one of the most vicious I had ever seen. The victim was a teenage girl found wearing only a tattered blouse. She was lying face down in a pool of blood. Her wrists and ankles were bound with twine and fishing wire. Detective Sylvia saw that the victim was badly beaten, her body covered with blood, bruises, and abrasions. When he finally turned her over, he was horrified by the sight. Her face and head had been crushed. Sylvia wondered if the murderer might have been trying to obscure the victim's identity. While he inspected the body, another investigator called his attention to several bloody rocks lying in the vicinity. The blood spatter suggested the rocks may have been thrown at the victim repeatedly. A disturbing picture of the murder began to materialize in Detective Sylvia's mind. A picture which suggested such incredible cruelty that he shuddered to think about it. Unfortunately, this was not the last killing Sylvia would be forced to investigate. Things were about to get much, much worse. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find episodes of Cults and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
To stream cults for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type cults in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Today, we're taking a deep dive into the Fall River Satanic Cult, which was responsible for the murders of three young women in Massachusetts in 1979 and 1980. This week, we'll explore the backgrounds of the cult's leaders, Carl Drew and Robin Murphy, as well as a few of their associates. Next week, we'll see how their bizarre rituals ultimately devolved into a brutal killing spree that left three people dead and three others in prison for life. Fall River is a small town nestled in the heavily forested southeastern portion of Massachusetts. Originally part of the Plymouth Colony, it's an old town with a lot of history, and not all of it is good. One of the most notorious crimes in U.S. history occurred in Fall River on August 4, 1892. That morning, property magnate Andrew Borden and his wife Abby were brutally axe-murdered in their home on 2nd Street. Their daughter, Lizzie, was put on trial for the murders and was eventually acquitted. But the story of Lizzie Borden and her axe has become an enduring part of American lore. Some 90 years later, Fall River once again found itself in the headlines after a series of brutal murders occurred there. The murders were rumored to have been committed by a group of Satanists who would eventually become known as the Fall River Cult. This cult was dominated by two people who managed sex workers in Fall River, though sources differ as to who was really in charge. The first of these was a troubled man named Carl Drew. Carl was born in New Hampshire in 1954 to a family of poor farmers. His father was an abusive alcoholic who not only routinely beat him, but also subjected him to horrific punishments. On one occasion, his father was inspecting a well and discovered several dead rats at the bottom. He called young Carl over and instructed him to bring a rope. He then tied the boy's ankles together and began lowering him over the edge of the well. As Carl screamed and begged to be brought back up, his father insisted that he had to retrieve the dead rats first. These sorts of episodes would become a regular part of Carl's childhood experiences. Another chore Carl hated performing was butchering the farm animals. Despite the fact that the work made him sick, his father reveled in ordering young Carl down to what he called the slaughter pit. It was here that unusable parts of pigs, chickens, and other animals were discarded after they were slaughtered for food. One night, a barn caught fire, and several animals, including a horse, were killed. The following day, Carl's father instructed him to butcher and dismember the horse and toss it in the slaughter pit. Carl took one look at the dead horse and flatly refused. The animal was black and charred, and he felt sick just looking at it. There was no way he was getting anywhere near it. When Carl told him no, his father lost it. He began to beat Carl, backing him up towards the pit. Carl retreated, not realizing what was behind him. 
Within moments, he fell over the edge, tumbling down among the blood and gore of desiccated carcasses. It was a horrific moment that he wouldn't soon forget. And studies show that such experiences in childhood can predispose a person to criminal behavior later in life. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. According to Todd Herencole of the University of Michigan School of Social Work, experiencing abuse in childhood increases the likelihood of a person turning to criminal activity later in life. Furthermore, as the National Institute of Justice described it, abused boys are more likely to perpetuate sexual and physical intimate partner violence in adulthood compared to their non-maltreated peers. The same study by Dr. Herencole found that education can be a mitigating factor. A higher level of education in an abused child correlates with a lower risk of adulthood crime. Unfortunately for Carl Drew, he dropped out of school after eighth grade. Around 1968, when Carl was 14, he left home for good and lived a life on the streets. For several years, he moved from town to town across New Hampshire and Massachusetts before finally reaching Fall River in the early 1970s. After arriving in town, Carl quickly found himself on the wrong side of the law. Crime, including drug use and the sex trade, had been rising in Fall River for several decades. Before that, the city had been known for its connection to the textile industry. Nicknamed the Spindle City in the 19th century, it was one of the largest textile-producing cities in the world. But as the textile industry began to collapse after World War II, businesses began to close, unemployment increased, and the population fell by more than 20%. The loss of jobs and the poor local economy created a vacuum that was filled by criminal elements. Many abandoned downtown buildings became hangouts for delinquents, drug dealers, and the homeless. By the late 1970s, sex work had become a lucrative business in the city. It was so rampant, in fact, that women would come from out of town to work the streets of Fall River, where there was always a reliable stream of buyers. That clientele came from all over the region, some from as far away as Boston, New York, and according to some reports, even Florida. The city that had once been known for textiles was now known for sex work. This fact was exploited by people all too willing to take advantage of women who needed to support their families. Carl Drew became one of those people after he arrived in Fall River in the early 1970s. A motorcycle enthusiast, he was always seen in a black leather biker jacket and heavy steel-toed combat boots. He soon joined a local Fall River biker gang called the Sidewinders, who were affiliated with the Hells Angels. He fit right in with the intimidating group. On his left hand, along the base of his knuckles, the word hate was tattooed in capital letters. Just above that on his forearm was a tattoo of the devil, red with a Van Dyke beard, along with the phrase Satan's Avengers. Another Satan's head was tattooed in the center of his chest. Carl started doing jobs for his new gang and became deeply immersed in the criminal elements in town. Eventually, he found he could make quick cash recruiting sex workers and established himself as a pimp in the Bedford Street area, right in the heart of Fall River. He arranged meetings between Johns and sex workers. 
In return for a sizable cut of the women's earnings, he also stepped in to make sure things went as planned, using violence if necessary. It seemed like Carl reckoned violence was usually necessary. He wasn't easy to forget, and it didn't take him long to gain a reputation throughout town, including with the local police. He was in and out of jail frequently, with charges ranging from assault to armed robbery. Though he dropped out of school after eighth grade, Carl had plenty of street smarts. He stated, my lessons were learned in the college of the street. Though they're often dismissed as trivial, street smarts are nothing to be taken lightly. Psychologist Robert J. Sternberg of Cornell University developed what he called the triarchic theory of human intelligence in 1985. It was among the first theories to challenge conventional notions of intelligence, which Sternberg argued were too narrow. His theory defines three different types of intelligence, including analytical intelligence, creative intelligence, and practical intelligence, or street smarts. As best-selling author and speaker Scott Birkin has stated, to be street smart means you have situational awareness. You can assess the environment you're in and what the available angles are. Street smarts means you've put yourself at risk and survived. Carl valued what he learned on the streets and employed his knowledge to dominate the local sex trade. Working the red light district in Fall River, he developed a reputation as cruel, fearsome, and unforgiving. The women who worked for him lived in fear of his anger. They were glad when he protected them, but he could just as easily turn his violence toward them. He routinely threatened their lives and their families if they didn't do what he told them to do. He would later state, I was a street kid, learning the harsh realities of the street and the survival skills that come with such a way of life. By 1978, Carl was a well-established pimp. In February of that year, he set up a meeting between a sex worker and a client he'd never met before. The man had the money, but was strange and gave Carl a bad impression. As a result, he stayed close by after dropping the man off at the woman's apartment. Just as he feared, within moments of leaving, he heard the woman begin to scream. Using his steel-toed boots, he kicked in the door and found the girl with a bloody nose and the man holding her by the hair. It wasn't clear what he intended to do, but Carl wasn't going to wait around to find out. He tackled the man to the ground and dragged him out into the hallway. Grasping the man by the collar at the top of the stairs, he kneed him in the groin and the man fell backwards, tumbling to the bottom. Taking the injured woman with him, he stepped over the unconscious man's body and quickly exited the apartment. Unfortunately for him, the fight had been heard by neighbors, and they called the police. A patrol car was pulling up just as Drew came out of the building. He stopped in mid-stride. They were caught, and things were about to get a whole lot worse. Coming up, we'll continue our exploration of Carl Drew's rocky background. Now, back to the story. In 1978, 24-year-old Carl Drew was a well-known pimp in Fall River, Massachusetts. On a cold February day, he punched a man and shoved him down a flight of stairs after the man had roughed up one of Carl's sex workers. Leaving the man unconscious on the floor, Carl and the woman tried to make a run for it. 
but the police were outside waiting for them. An officer called an ambulance for the injured man and then took both Carl and his female employee into custody. The woman for prostitution and Carl for assault. She resisted arrest, so the cop handcuffed her, but Carl was left with his hands free. After arriving at the police station, the cop left Carl in the back seat of the squad car and took the woman inside to book her. While waiting in the empty police department garage, Carl's thoughts turned towards escape. He first considered trying to break out the car window, but quickly dismissed the idea. Even if he could break the bulletproof glass, it would make so much noise he'd alert the whole neighborhood. But then he noticed the front of the cruiser. A metal divider prevented him from climbing across, but he thought he might be able to force it loose. He braced his shoulders and began kicking down the front seat, soon creating a narrow gap beneath the metal divider. Squirming through the breach, he let himself out the front passenger door. But there was still a guard at the booth by the garage entrance to deal with. That ended up being no problem. The officer was a genial older man, and Carl simply walked right past him, giving him a slight wave, as though he had every right to be leaving the building. The guard bought it, smiling and waving back. Carl had just escaped from police custody, but he knew it wouldn't be long before they came looking for him. The fact that he had left the sex worker behind meant nothing to him. As far as Carl was concerned, the women only mattered as long as they could make him money. Besides, he had bigger problems. As bad luck would have it, a major winter storm was just starting, the flakes already falling heavy and dense from the sky. He needed to make a decision. His best chance would be to escape across the border into Canada and lay low for a while. He knew a spot along the New Hampshire border where he could slip across. There was a shallow stream there, but it would be frozen this time of year. After making his way home through the falling snow, he quickly threw some clothes and personal items into a bag and jumped in his car. The highway was already becoming slick, but snowy roads didn't scare him. He'd weathered dozens of New England snowstorms. He hoped to make it out of Massachusetts and well into New Hampshire before things got too bad. It turned out to be a misplaced hope. With the winter storm raging, he wasn't able to make it very far north in his car. Interstates were being shut down, and people were abandoning their vehicles in snowdrifts. Carl would soon discover that this was no run-of-the-mill New England snowstorm. The so-called blizzard of 78 would dump almost 30 inches of snow across the region and include sustained winds as powerful as a Category 1 hurricane. But Carl Drew was nothing if not resourceful, especially when it came to evading law enforcement. As he would later state, I lived my life any way I could to survive. So, after abandoning his car, he stole a snowmobile from a nearby house and started heading north across the backcountry. When it ran out of gas, he simply found another and continued on his journey. But Carl's newfound freedom was not slated to be long-lasting. Police soon caught up with him and surrounded him on a snowmobile just short of the Canadian border. Thanks to the low visibility, Carl barely noticed authorities until they were already on top of him. Carl may have been daring, but he wasn't stupid. He knew he was outnumbered and surrendered without a fight. Police brought him back to Fall River to await trial for assault and evading police. 
things took a turn for the worse a month or so later. In the early spring of 1978, the man he had thrown down the stairs died in the hospital. Now, Carl was facing a possible murder charge. But luck proved to be on his side. The man was a drug addict, and the medical examiner couldn't definitively tell whether he had died from his injuries or complications of his drug use. Furthermore, the police had not yet taken the man's deposition, so he hadn't testified against Carl before his death. With no firm evidence that the beating caused the death, and with no testimony to tie Carl to the assault, the police had to let him go free. He quickly returned to pimping on Bedford Street. One afternoon in June of 1979, one of the sex workers who worked for him, Karen Marsden, came to him at a bar called the Penthouse, along with a friend she'd recently met. The new friend was a mother of four named Cookie, whose car had just been stolen. Karen asked if Carl could help get it back. Through his connections with his biker gang, the Sidewinders, Carl assured her he could take care of it. A few days later, the car was located and returned to Cookie. As promised, she paid him $75 for the trouble. But that's when he decided that $75 wasn't enough. Even though it covered their agreement, he expected more. He required that she start working the streets for him. Having never even considered sex work in the past, Cookie flatly refused. Carl responded by very calmly promising to kill her children if she didn't do what he asked. At first, she thought he was joking, but it quickly became apparent that he was deadly serious. He told her, I always get paid. No matter where you put your kids, one by one, I'll find them. She was on the street corner that night by 7 o'clock. And when she hesitated to do business with her first customer, Carl backhanded her across the face, bloodying her lip. Cookie had discovered the hard way how Carl Drew ran his tyrannical kingdom on Bedford Street. But his cruelty didn't stop competition from emerging in the form of a teenager named Robin Murphy. Not much is publicly known about Robin Murphy's childhood. She was born around 1962 and lived with her mother and stepfather in Fall River, but appears to have taken to the streets at a young age. She was intelligent and cold, frequently described as violent and domineering. Like Carl Drew, she had street smarts and knew just how to manipulate people into doing what she wanted. Also like Carl Drew, she was a victim of abuse from a young age. One afternoon in 1973, when Robin was about 11 years old, she had an argument with her mother and ran off. This was something she did frequently when things got rough at home. While walking along the side of the road, a car pulled up and a man behind the wheel rolled down the window. He asked her if she wanted a ride. Robin readily agreed. The man was 37-year-old drug addict, pedophile, and rapist, Andy Maltese. He was a self-described Satan worshiper and associate of Carl Drew. The middle-aged man started chatting with the preteen girl and drove her out to the Freetown Fall River State Forest, an enormous 5,000-acre forest along the outskirts of Fall River. There, they had sex in his car before he eventually drove her home. After that, Andy frequently picked her up from school in the afternoons and took her out to the same spot in the woods where he would give her drugs and have sex with her. 
As abusers often do, Andy convinced Robin that if she told anyone, it would be her who got in trouble, not him. According to Wendy Maltz, a sex therapist and expert on sexual abuse, survivors of such abuse can suffer from a host of long-term effects. Among these are emotional distance, compulsive or inappropriate sexual behavior, and an inability to maintain normal intimate relationships. Robin would eventually display all of these problems. As she got older, she moved from one relationship to another, dating both men and women. All the while, the abuse at the hands of Andy Maltese continued, becoming physical as well as sexual. He hit her more than once after finding her with someone else. It was likely Andy Maltese who introduced Robin to Satanism. The worship of Satan has a long and convoluted history that is full of heresy, false accusations, and misunderstandings. Dutch theology professor Ruben van Lyck has stated, the concept of Satanism is an invention of Christianity. It was in the context of Christian religion and of a society shaped by Christian religion that the idea of Satanism first arose. Perhaps the earliest example goes all the way back to the New Testament Gospel of John. There, Jesus is depicted as accusing his opponents of being the children of the devil. They want to put him to death because that's what the devil wants. Jesus tells them, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. For many centuries afterwards, heretical Christian groups were routinely accused of being associated with devil worship. Anyone who didn't conform to the prevailing orthodoxy was doing the devil's work. But while accusations and rumors have existed for centuries, there's not much evidence in the historical record of legitimate organized satanic worship. But all that changed towards the end of the 19th century, when a phenomenon known as religious Satanism began to develop. As opposed to vague accusations of being in league with the devil or doing the devil's work, Reuben van Lyck describes religious Satanism as the intentional and explicit worship of Satan. This modern form of Satanism evolved from a 19th century fascination with the devil among poets and writers. The threat of hell, so prominent in pre-Enlightenment Europe, had begun to fade with the rationalism of the 18th century. Satan began to be viewed as a comical, even sympathetic character. Writers and poets of the 19th century frequently portrayed Lucifer in a positive light and humanized him. This helped pave the way for the development of religious Satanism in the 20th century. As Carl Drew later told police, Satanists worship the devil like other people worship God. But even here, the worship of Satan can mean different things to different people. While organized satanic churches have existed since at least the 1960s, many Satanists are not necessarily connected to any organization. It was within this last category of personal theistic Satanism that Robin Murphy and Carl Drew eventually found a way of life. Carl would later write, Some of us came to believe in the Gothic lifestyle of ancient times, where we lived life by night. The Gothic way was something real that could be savored and relished. Robin got deeply involved in Satanism quickly after Andy Maltese introduced her to the concept. As a child, she had always been fascinated with ritual magic and demonology. As she got older, she came to learn that Satanism was a powerful tool to control people. 
By appealing to people's fears of Satan's wrath, she could convince them to do what she wanted. No doubt, thanks in part to her interest in Satanism in school, Robin had a reputation as a tough kid. Classmates feared her for her threatening attitude and unpredictable behavior. Teachers noted her high intelligence, but also recognized her as a manipulator and bully who had absolutely no sense of remorse. Robin was also an adept liar, twisting the truth whenever necessary to achieve her goals. Lying, in fact, would ultimately become one of her most notorious traits, remarked on by almost everyone who ever knew her. Robin eventually dropped out of school and began working the corners of Bedford Street. But unlike almost all the other women in that district, she didn't work for Carl Drew. Instead, she appears to have been a rare freelancer, too hard and too smart for Carl to control. He stated, I disliked her from my first meeting with her. Neither of them had any idea they'd eventually be working together to cover up a murder. Coming up, we'll explore Robin's descent further into Fall River's underworld and the development of a violent satanic cult. Now, back to the story. By 1979, Robin Murphy had suffered years of physical and sexual abuse, though she was only 17 years old. This forced her to grow tough and unforgiving, sparking a desire to repay violence with violence and control people through manipulation and fear. She took an interest in the dark and occult and began experimenting with Satanism. She frightened classmates and even her parents with her hyper-aggressive tendencies and constant manipulations. At one point, her mother sent her for psychological testing, but the doctor told her he believed she'd lied during the examination because she was afraid of being diagnosed with a personality disorder. The reality is, Robin showed many of the textbook characteristics of what psychologists call antisocial personality disorder. As writer and psychologist Derek Wood states, people who suffer from this disorder display a reckless disregard for the safety of themselves or others, failure to conform to social norms with respect to lawful behaviors, deceitfulness for personal profit or pleasure, and lack of remorse for actions that hurt other people. It's not clear when Robin left home for good, but by 1979, she was living in a housing project off Bedford Street called Harbor Terrace. At Harbor Terrace, Robin became intimately involved with another woman named Sunny Sparta. Sunny had worked on the street in the past, but now functioned like more of a den mother to the sex workers, runaways, and drug addicts who liked to hang out at her apartment. She may also have functioned as a madam and managed sex workers of her own. Like Robin Murphy, Sunny was also a Satanist. On the wall of the family room in her apartment was a large painting of Satan. Deep red and painted with thick brushstrokes, it showed a demon consumed by fire. Satan glowered at all who entered the room with eyes that seemed to follow them no matter where they went. For a time, perhaps after living with Sunny Sparta, Robin also lived with Karen Marsden. Karen was the woman who had unintentionally gotten her friend with a stolen car roped into working the street for Carl Drew. In time, Robin became intimately involved with Karen, too. But Karen, who lived with her grandmother and had a son who lived with a local foster family, was terrified of Robin. 
Robin seems to have had strong psychological control over Karen and could manipulate her into doing whatever she wanted. This was despite the fact that Karen was three years older. Karen's delicate disposition was no match for Robin's much stronger, manipulative personality. Karen, in fact, was just the kind of person that Robin tended to go after. Weak-willed, a people-pleaser, someone who didn't want to rock the boat and was easy to push around. Though she was an addict and a sex worker like the others, Karen was different from Robin. Only 20 years old, she'd been mature enough to realize she couldn't give her son the kind of environment a baby needs for growth and development. She visited him with his foster family on a regular basis and hoped one day to be able to bring him home. Karen lived at home with her grandmother and had regular contact with other members of her family. She always made sure to check in with her grandmother so she wouldn't worry about her. Her addiction to heroin seems to have been the main reason she got involved in the sex trade to begin with. But like so many others, once she was there, she found it difficult to get out. Her relationship with Robin Murphy only made matters worse. It was toxic from the start, and it certainly didn't help that Karen worked for Carl Drew. Though Robin never worked for him, their paths had crossed many times over the years as rivals on Bedford Street. Robin felt that Carl was trying to control the area with an iron fist, and Carl thought Robin was crazy. The truth is, they were cut from the same cloth, and Bedford Street wasn't big enough for the two of them. Their tense relationship was complicated by the fact that Carl had once slapped Robin after she took a fake ID from one of Carl's girls. Robin was not one to forgive or forget. Despite their rivalry, they tended to run in the same circles, know all the same people, and buy from the same drug dealers. They also shared an unlikely interest, religion. Both were avowed Satanists who worshipped together as part of the same satanic coven, a coven that operated in the heart of the Bedford Street District. The existence of such a bizarre cult wasn't exactly kept a secret. Police working the Bedford Street area had been hearing rumors for a long time of occultism and satanic rituals occurring in the neighborhood. Kids told each other stories of blood sacrifices committed by ghoulish cults in the deep woods that surrounded the town. No one but the participants knew exactly what went on within the satanic coven, or even who started it. But it was certainly an operation by 1979 and involved a small group of pimps, sex workers, and their unsavory associates. Anywhere from 15 to 25 people would generally attend their services. Some of the participants seemed to have really believed in what they were doing. Others, like Robin Murphy and Carl Drew, may have also believed, but were undoubtedly using it as a means of controlling others through fear. During the warm months, the group met in nearby forests, where they sacrificed animals on a makeshift rock altar and spoke in tongues. During the colder months, the group met at Sunny Sparta's apartment in Fall River, under the big painting of Satan in the family room. Here, they would chant and pray, attempting to somehow channel the power of Satan. When things really got going, the rituals could go on for an hour or more. Sunny Sparta stated, What the gatherings are for is to worship Satan. Just like in a church, we pray to Satan, we chant, we try to conjure him. According to Sunny, sometimes their conjurings worked. She stated, Plenty of times we get Satan right into the room. You can tell when Satan is there. Some people even let him speak through them in his own language. 
Sonny insisted that this speaking in tongues wasn't human language and that there was no way anyone could fake it. Glossolalia, as this phenomenon is known, has been practiced since antiquity and has long been controversial. Many believe it's a legitimate spiritual gift, while others dismiss it as superstition and fakery. Early psychological studies on the phenomenon tended to write it off as schizophrenia or hysteria, but in 2006, brain scan studies at the University of Pennsylvania found that use of the language centers in the brain actually decreased during episodes of glossolalia. According to neuroscientist Andrew Newberg, who led the study, this indicated that speaking in tongues is not associated with normal language function, but rather comes from the emotional centers of the brain. Studies performed on Pentecostals in Botswana found that regardless of the source, glossolalia leads to joy and physical and spiritual well-being. In addition to speaking in tongues, other aspects of the Satanism practiced in Fall River included slaughtering goats or cats in the forest and pouring the warm blood on select people's heads. The chosen person would be bound to a tree or rock altar in the woods during this ritual, like Jesus on the cross. Sometimes these people were willing participants, sometimes they weren't. In those cases, the ritual was used as a punishment for those who defied members of the cult. The group's belief system was simple. For members of the cult, Satan, rather than God, was the true savior. As Lucifer, he was the ancient bringer of light and enlightenment. By conjuring his spirit, he could protect them and guide them through life's difficulties. According to Sonny Sparta, the group believed that physical pleasure through sex, drugs, and alcohol was Satan's gift and was preferable to an afterlife that may or may not be real. Though police and locals had long heard rumors of satanic activity in the area, they never had any reason to investigate. Worshipping Satan, after all, wasn't a crime. So the burgeoning cult faced no police scrutiny, even as it grew and became a guiding force for well-known criminals in the area. Cult meetings led to seedy relationships and illicit alliances. But it also created new enemies. Sometimes when a cult member was disrespected, the other members stepped in to punish the offender. One of these group punishments led to murder on October 12, 1979. The next morning, the body of a teenage girl was found at the local vocational high school, lying under the bleachers in a pool of blood. Investigators quickly determined that the girl had been killed by having her head crushed with rocks. She'd also been stabbed several times in the back of the head, possibly after she was already dead and lying on the ground. She was naked, except for a tattered blouse, and investigators initially assumed this was a sex crime, which had escalated to murder. But the autopsy showed no signs of sexual assault. Rather, this appeared to be a brutal vengeance killing, particularly because of the damage to the victim's face. As author Catherine Ramsland, who is a professor of forensic psychology at DeSales University in Pennsylvania, has stated, it's very personal to damage a face. It's about wiping the victim out, erasing them as people. And the fact that the rocks used in the murder were left there, covered in blood for anyone to see, didn't sit well with investigators either. Dr. Ramsland continued, it bespeaks arrogance, the kind of arrogance that says, I don't really think anyone's going to link me to this, 
No one can catch me. The girl was identified as 17-year-old Doreen Levesque of nearby New Bedford, Massachusetts. She was a sex worker and one of the many out-of-towners who came to Fall River to do business. She'd been a troubled kid who, like Robin Murphy and so many others, had eventually made her way to drugs and the street. It might have been easy to assume she'd run afoul of a dangerous client or an angry drug dealer if her murder had been more run-of-the-mill. But the violence displayed in the murder, the overkill, the multiple bloody rocks together with stab wounds, all pointed to more than one person being involved. And the rocks in particular indicated a ritualistic quality to the killing. The medical examiner believed she'd been tortured by stoning. Stoning, which is also known as lapidation, is a form of execution in which a group of people pelt an offender with stones, killing them by blunt force trauma. It was one of the primary methods of execution in the ancient world, particularly for blasphemy and certain sexual crimes. References to it can be found in both the Old and New Testaments, as well as the Quran. That it may have been used in the murder of a local sex worker was troubling in the extreme. Police had no obvious initial suspects, but between their knowledge of a ritualistic aspect to the killing and the victim's status as a sex worker, they zeroed in on the Harbor Terrace housing project near Bedford Street. That was where Sonny Sparta and Robin Murphy lived, as well as a number of other local sex workers. It was the home base of the satanic cult that cops already knew about. It was time for detectives to enter the devil's lair. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back with part two of the Fall River Satanic Cult next Tuesday. Next week, we'll delve into the investigation of Doreen Levesque's murder and the violence that would continue within the shadow of the Fall River Satanic Cult. For more information on this cult and the murders its members were implicated in, amongst the many sources we used, we found Mortal Remains by Henry Scammell extremely helpful to our research. You can find episodes of Cults and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Cults, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Cults on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Cults in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Maggie Admire, and Travis Clark. This episode of Cults was written by Scott Christmas and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Thank you.